The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you all will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your word, that we would be changed by it more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why does Peter include this story? Why this story? Since we know how this story is going to play out. I mean, this particular story in the Mount of Olives. We're walking over the next few weeks through Lent over these last few hours leading up to Jesus' death. Today, we're in the Mount of Olives. Why does Peter include this story because by tradition Mark's gospel is the record of Peter's preaching right Mark the companion went with Peter and recorded what Peter preached so when you read Mark's gospel by tradition we believe this is what Peter was preaching again and again why did Peter include this I mean is it a bit like those 1990s motivational posters do you remember those They're up in offices and schools and sometimes people's homes. There'd be a picture and there'd be a big leadership word and then there'd be a caption underneath. You know, there'd be a a, a sea rough and stormy and you'd just see the edge of the wheel of a ship and it would say, courage. And then the caption would say, anyone can take the helm when the sea is calm. And you go, oh, that's so inspiring, Right? But there's also the mocked versions of them, and that's what we have in our house. Right? So in our home, we have one in our kitchen that flashes up on the screen uh, that says mistakes. It's got a picture of a sinking ship and uh, mistakes, and the subtitle is, it could be that the very purpose of your life is simply to be a warning to others. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of encouragement we want to give our children in the home and anyone who visits our house. Is that the reason that Peter tells a story? Is it a cautionary tale? Partly, but the truth is Peter tells this tale. He talks about this moment in the Mount of Olives and all the things that he said and Jesus said because in it we find the gospel. So here's what we find. If you turn there with me to Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 26, here's what we see in the text. 
Here's the good news. It's hard news to start, but trust me, it's good news. Here's the good news. That we, like Peter, are more conceited than we know. And we, like Peter, are more condemning of others than we know. Ready for the good news? The good news is, but Jesus knows. And he is completely committed to you and I still. We are more conceited and more condemning than we even know, but Jesus knows, and he's still committed to us. See, first we see that we are more conceited than we know. Verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. What's Peter's response in verse 29? I will not. Now, Peter is as best as he knows, that's the key language, speaking truth. He really believes himself. Sadly, Peter doesn't really, in his heart of hearts, know what he really, truly believes in this moment. He's pretty emphatic about it. He goes on in verse 30 to say, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter means what he says. Peter just sadly doesn't know himself well enough. He doesn't know what is actually welling up inside him. Peter believes that his deep commitment will last for all ages. Jesus tells him, in fact, your deep commitment won't even last out the night, this very night. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. See, the problem with Peter is he doesn't know how conceited he is. And I use the word conceited. It's a harsh word, but it's an accurate word because the word conceit is to have an inflated sense of self. And we know as Christians, we're not to be conceited, right? Well, we can guise it underneath even our Christian commitments. We have an inflated sense of our level of commitment to Jesus. We have an inflated sense of our love for Jesus. We have an inflated sense of how committed we really are. When the truth is, we don't even know how weak and how wayward and how prone to faithlessness we are. And that is the definition of conceit. You know, it's interesting. Peter, again, really does believe deeply. But believing deeply, being committed deeply, will not be enough because Peter is not aware of what's really going on inside him. He's more conceited than he knows, and so are you and I. Matthew Henry, the 17th and 18th century pastor, wrote these words. Listen carefully to these. He says, those are least safe who are most secure. He wrote them in the context of this passage. Those are least safe who are most secure. And then he explains it by saying this. Every day the world turns over on someone who thinks he's sitting on top of it. Every day the world turns over on someone who thinks he's sitting on top of it. We think we've got it all together. We think we're committed until we're not. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. We're more conceited than we know. But Jesus knows, and that's good news. 
number of years ago, we were doing an exercise with our staff, a leadership exercise on blind spots. I, I love to tell this story. It's embarrassing to even admit it, but it's important to share sometimes embarrassing stories. We're doing this exercise in blind spots. It was a leadership thing. We were talking about how let's identify blind spots, the definition being you don't know they're there, right? And, and I felt at the end of the discussion, our staff had had a wonderful work through. We all were much more enlightened about our blind spots. And I said at the end, I can't believe I said it. I said, well, at least one thing I know, you know, blind spots been identified for me and for you today, but at least I know I'm cool under pressure. And everyone got really quiet. And I thought that was a weird reaction. So I came home and I told Monica, I said, so Monica, this thing happened. We were talking about blind spots. And uh, I mentioned how at least I'm thankful that uh, I'm cool under pressure. And she said, are you serious? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, when you're anxious, the whole zip code knows. And I said, you know, I just don't see it. And she said, that's why it's called a blind spot. See, we don't see the conceit in us. We guise it, and yet it's there. C.S. Lewis famously talked about the cure for our conceited pride. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Or in the words of Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, this Mount of Olives moment, the reason Peter includes it is to help us realize, like him, that we are more conceited than we even know. And we're more condemning. Notice Peter's rejection of Jesus' declaration that all will fall away. He doesn't just lead with, I will not. Verse 29, he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Notice the comparison. We do this all the time. Again, we don't claim to do it. We know that it's wrong, but this is the language of condemnation over others. It's the language of contempt over others. As John Stott would say, we have a terrible tendency of over-exaggerating the sins of others and downplaying our own sins. We do it all the time. It's a natural tendency for us to look out and have a high view of sin while at the same time having a very high view of self. And as a result, we miss what's really going on. And let's be really clear. The language of condemnation, condemning another, quietly in your heart or even out loud, speaking condemnation over another, is not just bad behavior for a Christian, it's blasphemous. Why is it blasphemous, you may say? Because we're speaking condemnation over a human being made in the image of God. In the words of Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher, contempt, let's understand what it is, contempt, thoughts and words of condemnation for another, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Now you may, may say, that's not where the gossip or my thoughts begin, but that's where they end up. The unworthiness of another. 
taking a person made in the image of God in the language of Genesis 1, 26, and debasing them, dehumanizing them, taking away their dignity. Isn't it interesting about condemnation that there is one person who walked the earth who could condemn, really had the right to, totally perfect, actually was given the role and has the role of judge of the world. And he walked this earth and he had every right to condemn those around him, but he didn't. And yet somehow we do. He didn't condemn. You know those words of John 3.16, we all know that center of the gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We forget John 3.17. John 3.17 that says that God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the last 400 years, 300 years, has a little book called Lectures to My Students. And in it, it's recorded a number of his students wrote out some of the lectures he delivered as a homiletics and theological professor. And one of them that really stands out when you read his letters to his students is a lecture entitled The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And here's what he's basically saying to these young pastors about to go out into the world. He says, listen, you're gonna go out there and you're gonna bump into Christians every day and you're gonna find them in their best moments and in their worst moments. And there's gonna be moments when you see one of your fellow Christians do something or say something and they're at their very worst moment. They're just not in a good place. You know, whether temptation has just grabbed a hold of them that day, they're having a terrible week. For some reason, you've caught their worst moment in what they've said or what they've done. And he said, I pray that you would not in that moment hold on to those moments and stand in judgment, but instead would let the true judge of all judge and simply let those moments go. When you see something like that, a momentary lapse in another believer, have a blind eye to it. When you hear a momentary lapse in a fellow believer, let it be it all fall on your deaf ear. Or even as he said, if you make a suit jacket, he said, always make sure that one of your suit pockets has no bottom to it. It's like, an, he said, so, you know, just take that thing you hear and put it in the bottomless pocket. You'll never find it again. Because if we cling to it, if we hold to what we see as perceived as wrong or sinful in the lives of those around us, all we will do is become condemning hypocrites. You know, Luke chapter six says it a little stronger than Matthew chapter seven. Matthew seven, Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. I like how Luke's version goes a bit further. It says, judge not lest ye be judged. Condemn not lest ye be condemned. We are more conceited than we know and we are more condemning of others than we know. But here's the good news. Are you ready for the gospel? Here's the gospel. But Jesus knows. He totally knows it. He's aware of all of it, even when we're not. He knows just how conceited. He knows just how condemning. And he knows all the other things that could be added to that list. He knows it fully of you and I, and yet he's still committed to us. We see that here in the Mount of Olives. Notice what he says in verse 29, when he says, after I am 
raised. That might be verse 27. You can check it. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, what he's saying here is after I'm raised up, he's referencing a future moment that's coming in but a few hours, well, a couple days, but in a few hours, he's about to be arrested. Is it, is it 28? Thank you. See, this is called participatory preaching, okay? I got the verse number wrong. I got the text memorized. Are you impressed? See, my conceit's coming out, right? But I got the number wrong. Thank you, 28. That's a true friend in Christ. It's like when you got something in your teeth. Like, point it out to me so it doesn't end up on the recording for Archbishop Foley to watch. So verse 28, he's saying, after I am raised up, after my death for the sin of the whole of humanity, and I raising to declare victory and triumph over the death, after all that's achieved, I'll go before you into Galilee. Now, in the one sense you can be encouraged as Galilee, isn't it such a wonderful word that Jesus, after Easter, is still willing to go into Galilee, still willing to go into the backwards, unexpected places with backwards, unexpected people reaching the broken lost. That's where he's going to meet them, he says. After it's all done, I'll meet you back where I found you in Galilee. But even more, I'll go before you is discipleship language. After I'm raised up, I will go before you. That's the language in the Greek of a rabbi to a student, of a master to an apprentice. You will follow me yet again. Do you hear it? It's shepherding language. After I'm raised up, I'm not just going to be your Lord. I'm going to be back being your leader. I'm not just going to be your savior after Easter. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm not just going to be your redeemer. I will continue to be your rabbi. After I am raised up, I will continue to walk with you and lead you and govern you and guide you and shape you day by day into the disciple I'm making you into. Do you hear it? It's the consistency of his commitment. It's never been about the depth of our commitment to Jesus that matters. It's about his depth of commitment to us. He is committed. He knows. You know, it's interesting, the shepherd's, Staff, the shepherd's crook, the crozier that bishops carry. I'm getting used to this new bit of apparatus. Uh, I'm learning uh, when to hold it and when not to hold it. In uh, hockey terms, I'm working on my stick handling. Um, that would be much funnier in Canada. But the key is, the key is the shepherd's staff that the bishop carries is meant to be a symbol. It's not his own staff. It's not my own staff. It's a picture of Jesus' staff. Jesus' continuing commitment to shepherd you and me. He knows us. He knew us before he called us and he's still committed to us today. Now, how do we know that? How do we know his commitment stands? Because, I mean, I don't know how conceited I am. It might be pretty bad. I'm sure it is. I don't know how condemning I am. It could be pretty bad. I'm sure it is. And the list goes on. How can we be sure that he stays committed? Because look at what he's just done. And with this, I close. Jesus, before the Mount of Olives, 
institutes the Lord's Supper. He sits with his disciples at Passover and does something different with the bread when he says, this is my body broken for you. Different with the cup when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for forgiveness for you and for the sins of the world. And notice he does it before he goes to the cross. Do you ever think about this? That Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper not after the death and resurrection when he's conquered our sin and death. He does it before. Before knowing who his disciples were and knowing who they would be. Knowing what the disciples had done and what they were about to do, he broke bread with them then. Knowing it all, he made his decision beforehand. And so it is for you and I today as we gather at the table week after week. We don't know how conceited we've been this week. We don't know how condemning we are. We don't know how the rest of the other list goes on. But Jesus knows it all and calls us still to himself. I will be your shepherd still. It was never about our depth of commitment. It was always about his depth of commitment. For as 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, we expect him to say, well, then he'll be faithless with us. No, no, that's not what 2 Timothy 2 says. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. You know, those words that describe our weakness, our frailty, how it's never been up to us in the first place. Those words from my favorite hymns. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm till the end, our maker Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. Why does Peter include this story of the Mount of Olives? Because it contains the gospel. We do not know how conceited and condemning we are. But Jesus knows. And like Peter, with us, he is completely committed to shepherd us still. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.